I'm going to speak on um, the next two weeks, actually. I'm going to be speaking on slavery. I'm going to be speaking this morning on a slave to Christ. Next week, I'm going to speak on the relief of being a slave out of Psalm 23. I know it's quite provocative. We're going to be looking at some of those things. This morning is, is quite a, a challenging message in some ways. Um, hopefully very encouraging for you as well, very stimulating. Um, so we're going we're gonna to think together. But this title, I didn't just kind of pluck it out of the air. A Slave to Christ is very much a title from New Testament language. If you're new to, the, new to coming to church, you might not know what the New Testament is. That's where the Bible kind of divides into its second part when Jesus comes all the Gospels are written, that from then forward is the New Testament. Um, and there's apostles who are these, these men and, uh, who follow Jesus. And it's used, they use this language, slavery, to describe their relationship with God. It's one of the words that they um, use. Some time ago, I started thinking about how Christ is the director of my life, is the director of the paths that I go on. Um, I started thinking about being a prisoner. This is the other language that Scripture uses. And and wondering, what does it really mean as a Christian to identify with, with Christ being a captor and me being a prisoner in response to that? And next week in particular, we're going to look at some of the incredible joy and the relief that comes from this kind of willing, joyful captivity. But how... How do we view Christ, view the Father as Lord? We use these words, they get very familiar. The word master. Um, even this morning, just as we were singing that song, Hosanna, it was a beautiful moment. Sorry if you're new and you know, quite instructive. Get on your knees, everybody. Um, it can be quite intimidating. And then sit down, you know, if you, if you feel this and if you're already sitting down and you're like a visitor, you like jump back up again. <laughs> Everyone's going to like surround you. Um, but the, the real sense in my heart as we were singing that song is it's Hosanna is a king word. It's a word about the king. It's a word about you're the king and I'm, I'm not. And they would, that's the word that they sang as Jesus came into Jerusalem and they put the palm branches in front of him, a recognition of his um, messiahship. And so that's where we're going to be heading. It amazed me as I started to look into this that over 120 times in the New Testament this word is used, the word slave. It's a lot of times. Um, sometimes just speaking about a slave, like, do you know the book of Philemon? Or some of you say Philemon or something, or I don't know how you say it. It's Philemon um, in my family. Um, that's written about a slave who's run away from his believing master. And the slave is a believer, it seems, and the master is his believer. And Paul is writing to commend the slave back to the master. That's what it's about. So sometimes it's used in that. Um, but often it's used in this way of being a slave to Christ. Now, right up front, uh, there's, there's an author called Sam Storms. Um, he's, he's been very influential. I just want to recognize him. I went to um, start studying this and start thinking about this in my own personal space and came across some stuff by Sam Storms that has just heavily influenced what I'm sharing this morning, and i just like to give credit to that. All right, that's enough, enough rambly intro. Let's go. Romans chapter 1. I'm reading in the NLT, my favorite version. Um, it says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. So let me give you a tiny bit of context. Paul had never been to Rome when he wrote this, ever. 
Certainly not that it's recorded for us. Paul probably only knew a handful of the people in a church. So remember when we read the Bible, we read it and we're not quite sure necessarily context and all of those things. It was written, these things were read in churches. So guys would come together on a Sunday, they started doing that after the resurrection of Jesus, and a book like Romans or Hebrews would actually be read in public to churches. Many of them would then circulate to different churches in the province, and then sometimes even into other provinces, these books would be written. So Paul didn't know very many of this congregation that he was writing to, and I wondered if I was Paul, how I would begin to introduce myself. How would I commend myself to a congregation that didn't know me? And I wanted to say to them, guys, I have some really important stuff. I really want you to listen to what it is that I have to say. And then you look at what Paul could have said. And sometimes he does say these things in other ways and other shapes and forms. But he could have pointed to his miracles. He could have pointed to, I met with Jesus in person. Like Jesus knocked me off a donkey and I, was, I, I met with him. He could have pointed to going up into the third heaven. Like how many of you have been there? Right? He, he could have spoken about the number of churches he's planted, all of these things. And instead, the, the identifier that Paul leads with to people he does not know is this is who I am. If you want to know who I, who's writing his letter to you, I am a slave of Christ. Now, we, we've done series on identity. Even just recently, we went through Ephesians, which is an incredible, the first three chapters of Ephesians, I think, are the most critical chapters of the Bible to read to secure us in who we are, in who, how God sees us. And this, this idea of, of identity is a huge idea in, in, in our culture, and rightly so. We know how important it is as believers to know who you are in Jesus Christ. If you don't have a, a solid view of who you are, who you really are, then we work out of some faulty sense. Our ministry, our life, our career, our, all our, our personal relationships come out of this faulty place if we don't really know that we are children of God. Right? So if I was going to identify who, how do I identify myself as a Christ follower, as a preacher, whatever it is, I would be far more likely to go to, I'm a child of God, I'm adopted, precious things, Right? I'm an heir. I love thinking about an heir. I mean, who doesn't like a story about that auntie somewhere you didn't know about that passed away and left you like millions of rand? Right? I mean, it's an heir. You literally have an, an inheritance. We think of words like forgiveness, words like chosen, words like loved and valued. And these are words that we very often hear in church and we, we speak about this component of our identity. This is who we are. I am. I am forgiven. I am valued. I am these things. But have you ever heard recently, maybe in life group, someone go, well, I am a slave. It's not the commonest. I don't even know if that's a word. The most common um, identifier, is it? And it's not, just, it's not just one random slip of Paul's pen. He writes the same thing in Philippians. He writes the same thing in Titus. In, Phil in Philemon, he, he calls himself a prisoner for Jesus Christ, I already mentioned that, a prisoner. Peter, the other, other great apostle, does the same. If you go and read the beginning of 2 Peter chapter 1, he says the same, I'm a slave for Christ Jesus. And all of these occurrences in God's Word, and we're going to read a whole bunch more just now, makes me wonder if it's worth pausing and considering why this is such a big identifier for them. And then maybe, if it ought to be for me, if it ought to be for you, that somewhere in our letting Jesus shape our identity that we should be thinking, is 
being a slave part of that. And I would say from Scripture, very much so. Now, many of you, if you've got an ESV, if you've got an NIV, all sorts of Bibles, would translate that word that the NLT translates slave as servant or bond servant. But the Greek word there is a word doulos. And I don't normally, you know me, I don't normally go into the Greek word stuff, but the word is doulos. And actually in the Old Testament, that word is, as far as I know, always translated slave. It's not servant, it's slave. And when we get into the New Testament, for I'm going to read a section from Sam Storms now, and it is an obvious reason why they shifted to servant. But it's not actually a great translation here, because servant means that you retain your rights. It means that you do your duty, and then it means you go back home and you do what you want to do. There's a limit. There's a, there's a kind of boundary to what part of you is given. Slavery, in all of its ugliness does not have that boundary. You are owned. And we're going to speak about that a little more in a moment. Okay, so let's, I, I just wanted to get through this part. Um, and I'm going to read Sam Storms. Quite a long section, actually. You can also grab photos of it. I think it'll come up, hey, Dev? It's coming up, eh? Probably spent the whole week writing this out. Let me read it for you. But you can grab a photo and read it again. It says, he says, Most English translations avoid using the word slave, for obvious reasons, it suggests an oppressive and even cruel dehumanization and domination of one person by another. It's quite difficult for us in the U.S. or us in South Africa or anywhere really to think of a slave without our minds immediately rushing back to the race-based slavery that plagued our country and largely provoked the civil war. But race or ethnicity has absolutely nothing to do with being a slave of Jesus Christ. White believers are slaves of Christ. Black believers are slaves of Christ. Asian and Native American Indian believers are slaves of Christ. He's obviously writing into his context. So if our being, a, if our being slaves of Jesus Christ has nothing even remotely to do with our individual ethnicity, why did Paul choose this term? Why did he make it such a vital element in his own sense of personal identity? carries on in most forms of slavery, one person is in some sense owned by another. This is true even in the case of economic slavery. In this instance, a person becomes the property of another in order to discharge or pay off a debt. But economic slavery isn't a good, good analogy for what Paul means because that was a form of slavery from which one could eventually emerge and obtain one's freedom. But we'll see in just a moment, we won't because we're not going to finish this article, that we who believe in Jesus will remain his slave forever into the far reaches of eternity future. But it is really the case that slaves of Jesus Christ are, but is it really the case that slaves of Jesus Christ are in any sense owned by him? Can it be said that the Christian is someone else's property? Again, I understand why saying yes to this question, but it can be quite offensive. So bear with me as I try to explain what it means to be owned by Jesus. Let's be perfectly clear. You still with me? Let's be perfectly clear about one thing. In our world today, indeed in the totality of human history, the idea that one human could actually own another human is abhorrent. It violates everything we know of what it means for a person to be created in the image of God. But Jesus was more than a human. Yes, he was fully human, but he was also fully God. And he didn't purchase people on an auction block by offering the highest price in dollars and cents. The Apostle Peter, no less than Paul, we've read this section already, or I mentioned it, already referred 
refers to himself in Peter 2 verse 1, 1 as a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. But Peter also made it clear that Christians were not ransomed or redeemed or purchased with perishable things such as silver or gold, as in the normal slave trade they would have been purchased, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Not the combined monetary wealth of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, put your name in, would be sufficient to purchase us out of slavery to sin and condemnation. The only purchase price that would avail was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Profound, long. Um, Perhaps you're not convinced yet. So let's turn to a few scriptures. Turn in your Bible, you should be at Romans 1. Turn a little bit forward to Romans chapter 14. And let's read verse 7 and 8 together. This one I'm reading in the ESV. nice to hear some real pages turn. This is what Paul says later on in Romans. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. He takes two extremes, living and dying. It's like it's big buckets. It's not small things, big things. And he says, whichever of those things happen, we are the Lord's. This idea of ownership, of belonging to, of even being the property of. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 7, I'll just read it because you're going to take some time to get there. It says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Galatians 3 verse 29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, is according to the promise. All these verses speak to slavery. They all speak to being owned. They all speak to being belonged. Not a word. All speak to being the property. And I think in Scripture it's quite hard to avoid that there's a very clear sense of belonging to Christ, we are His. It's, it's so simple, right? But it seems to me it's right there. A very, under, a very clear outworking art, of this is that we are not free to simply do as we choose. If you belong to Jesus, if that's true, you are not simply free to do as you please. Let me read one more scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20. Or do you not know... That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Won't you say that to yourself? Say it aloud. I am not my own. Can you say that again? I am not my own. Right, stand up, sit down, kneel. I'm kidding. One more time. One more time. I am not my own. Now, obviously, right now, I'm speaking to those of you who follow Jesus. If there's someone here who does not follow Jesus, you can't say that yet. I'll give you a chance for that later. Why are you not your own? He carries on. For you were bought with a price. Is the idea of slavery. You've been bought by someone other. And then Paul's conclusion in this Corinthians text is, So glorify God in your body. It's, it's this, this idea of God buying us, of God owning us, of, of being happy, willing slaves. It's not just a figure of speech. It's not just 
in the Western compartmentalized way where we like to like have our little silos, where my family is here, my work is here, my spirituality is here. It's not just in your spirituality silo, like God owns my soul. Like this is a holistic, if you read scripture, it's a holistic owning of Paul. And the implications of this are, are huge. They're huge. If you can truly grasp this, if you can grasp that you are not your own, I am not my own, Paul in this passage actually goes to the body. Yeah, that's, what he's, that's the example he's using to argue this. Your body is not your own body, is what he's saying. But what about your mind and what goes into your mind? If it's not your mind, if it doesn't belong to you, if God somehow has ownership over our mind, it profoundly changes what we watch, how we think, what we say, what we do, your will, your future, your future plans. Like, this is what I want. This is my desire. This is my hope for my future. And those things God wires us, and those are not all bad things, but they are brought under submission to God and say, my desires are secondary to what you want me to do because I am your happy slave. I am your willing prisoner. Careers are not just simply yours to plot. Where you go, how you go. Your talents, your gifts, as Batesy was saying earlier on, my stuff, it's not just ours. If you owned by God, this has a, a profound impact. For us and our family right now, you, you guys have been here, you've heard the news. Our geography, Mila was just in, and, and Molly were just in, um, in the UK, and the first thing saying out of her mouth this morning is, why are you going? It's terrible. Say, <laughs> so, thank you, Jesus, for this encouragement of, of the body. But even our geography, if we understand this, is not ours to simply choose. We don't just go like, oh, that looks like nice mountains. That looks fun. This is what I really want to leave us with today. What I'm saying now. This, this, I haven't got much longer to go. But, but will you freshly consider the implications of slavery to Christ? That's really what I want us to consider. What does this mean for me? If this is from God's word and it's true, then what does it mean for all these different areas of our lives? And the Holy Spirit can get you just where he needs to get you. So I'm just going to do two quick points. The first one is, I want to just press a, a few of these things home a little bit. The first one is my, my rights. And the cultural mindset that de demands that demands my rights is ironically wrong. That's everywhere we look, we hear things like, it's my body, I'll do with it what I want. The Bible says, not true. The Bible says if you're a Christ follower, you give up the right to just do what you want with your body. It's my time, I'll use it as I please. Fill in, you know, it's my money, I'll spend it as I please. Whatever you want to put in there, the Bible says, not true. When it comes to time, again and again, the Bible actually says stuff like this. You don't even know when you're going to die. You think you're in control of your time? You don't even know how much time you have left. How can you be the master of your own time? It's like you are, even in this area, it's so clear how the Bible speaks about it. I mean, one hugely current one for us, our sexuality. I'll express it as I please, sleep with who I please, who are you to tell me what to do? And on every one of those things, the Bible goes, not true, 
not true, not true. And then even on some of the softer stuff, like I have a right to not be mistreated. You only, I have a right that to be spoken to respectfully. Even there the Bible goes not true. They were persecuted for my name's sake. They were mistreated for my name's sake. Go and read the end of Hebrews chapter 11. I spoke about this not so long ago, that we all love the part in Hebrews 11, which is the, which is the great faith chapter. We all love the, the parts. Where like, and, they, and they took over this kingdom, and they fought, and they had swords, and they won, and they did these things. And we're like, yeah, we love that. Let's be that kind of church. And then it goes, but still talking about the people of faith. With, by faith, they did these things. They claimed back their dead from the dead. God raised them to life again. And all these like, powerful things. And we're like, yes, we're in for that. And then it carries on, and it says, and they lived in holes. And they didn't have clothes, and they didn't have food, and they were beaten and, and chased. And the world was not worthy of them. And that's still talking about faith. Still talking about faith. Let me just, just pause. Just want to just relax. I'm not talking about your right to a fair trial. I'm not talking about our rights to vote. I'm not talking about the right to own the house that you've paid for. I'm speaking about the, the, the rights that we bring with our mentality into our relationship with God and how a warped and selfish and broken Western idea of our, our, our rights is flooding into the relationship that we have with God and we have this idea of you don't have the right to tell me what to do or how to spend or how to live or where to live. Even as um, Kate and I in this season are processing around our family and, and the huge changes coming, some things are really hard to, to kind of not say, God, this is off the table. Like, you can take us to this part of the UK, but we really don't want to go there. Like, God, our kids need this. We really don't want to take them into this. Even in steps of faith, might even be big steps of faith, this thing can creep in where there's little, like, sections of non-negotiables you know i'll do this for you lord but then as slaves to christ brought with his precious blood paid for by jesus in the most wonderful sense friends i want to remind us this morning that we have no right to look at whatever we want to look at we have no right as a christ follower to please what we would please we have no right to sleep with whomever we please we have no right to spend our money however we please we have no right to pursue our career or our course of life as it just suits our fancy or whatever we would like to do we are not the lord of our lives we are not the captain of our soul we are not the masters of our fate that's what romans 1 that's what paul is saying that's why paul says i'm a slave to jesus christ the second thing, so we give up our rights, that's one thing. The second kind of thing I just want to zoom in on a little bit is God defines truth. Another key, key idea of Paul's happy slavery to Christ is this idea that God defines right and wrong. God's the one who says this is right, this is wrong. God decides what is true and what is false. God decides, so we are not free, I am not free to decide what I think is good and what I think is evil. God decides that. I'm not free to choose a worldview. 
I'm not free to look at all the different ways that people view the, view the world and go, oh, I really like that one. Or, or what we normally do is take some from this one, some from that one, some from that one, and kind of make a Hudson worldview. Actually, if this is true, what I'm saying, if it's true, you're going to have to go and read your Bibles and figure out, is this pastor actually talking truth today? If this is true, we don't have that freedom. The next one is hard. It doesn't even have to make sense to us. For, for thousands of years, issues that are being debated in the church right now have been clearly obvious to people in church, people who had access to the Bible, theologians, priests, monks, the Moravians, we should talk about them when we're talking about slavery. If you don't know them, it's powerful, but I'm not going to go there now. All of these thousands of years have looked at issues like homosexuality, like gender debate that's going on right now, and they've said God's word clearly tells us what the truth is. It's only really in the last 50 years or so that these things are beginning to be re-looked at with arrogant eyes, really. Tim Keller speaks about the arrogance of, of your own generation and thinking like you see further than anyone else. Guys, there's far more intelligent generations that have gone before us. Uh, I, was, I don't want to get distracted, but I was, I was fascinated reading an article recently about these things that they discovered in, I think it was in Scotland, I think, um, and the stone masonry that was, that was on these, just like these kind of like high-rise big huts basically made out of stone. But the way that the, the archaeologists tried to now understand how these guys had built this was to try and rebuild it to try and rebuild one from scratch. They looked the whole world over and could find no one with anywhere near the level of skill required to cut the stones in the way that these guys had been able to cut the stones. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a skill that the world had, which the world has lost. So my point is simply don't think that our generation can see further or see better. Actually, on these issues, if God is clear in his word, that's all we need. It doesn't need to make sense. I know that's hard. The next one is, for me, even slightly harder. It doesn't even have to feel fair. God decides justice. God judges. Thank God he judges. If I was judging some of you and if some of you were judging me, man, we would be in big, we'd be in big trouble. Okay, I want to move on. But these are the kinds of things that Paul and Peter and, and many millions of Christians have experienced and written about as they lay claim to this identity of I am a slave to Christ. God's idea trumps my idea. God's direction for my life trumps my direction for my life. God's wisdom trumps my wisdom and any other great philosopher any scientist, God's wisdom trumps all of those things. Let me read again from Sam Storms. He says, Thus, being a slave of Jesus means that we are altogether loyal to him. What he says is true is true because he says it. We are not free to disagree. To disagree is sin. Whew, all the big words coming out today. What he says to do, we do. We are not free to disobey. To disobey is sin. 
This may strike some of you as horrible, but it is in fact where true joy and heartfelt satisfaction are found, as we've been talking about in our flourishing series. If God, if God wrote the manual, then God knows what we actually need. And even if you look at it and say, this doesn't sound great, this sounds horrible, God is going, I know you, I made you, this is what is going to make you flourish. God knows what is true and right and what brings greatest delight to the human heart. Let me press this point. When the Bible clearly teaches something is true, the slave of Jesus Christ cannot respond and say, well, that may be true for you, but not for me. Or, well, God, that's just your opinion. When the Bible teaches something that you don't like, what you like or don't like doesn't matter. It's not trying, I'm not trying to be mean or heavy-handed, but the fact is that there are some things in the book of Romans that you, that some of you won't like. He was writing this about a book, the book of Romans, but that's true for the whole Bible. There's things in the Bible that we will not like. But if you regard yourself as a Christian, a slave of Jesus Christ, the only thing that matters is what he likes. So when the Bible commands a particular kind of behavior, like not committing fornication, which is to do with sexual stuff, pornography, that kind of thing, or stealing or lying, you are not free to do otherwise. If you're a slave of Jesus Christ, you cannot say, well, sorry, but it's my body and I can do with it whatever the heck I please. Whoo! Can I have a hallelujah? This is heavier than I thought it would be in my, in my office when I was practicing. <laughs> Forgive me. Actually, don't forgive me. Sometimes we need to hear it like this. Sometimes it just needs to just settle on us. Guys, can I, can I ask you, can you imagine if we lived like this? What would, it, what would it look like? What would our lives, what would Paul's life look like if, if I lived with this identifier that I am a slave to Christ? What would one hope look like if we could catch something of this slavery to Christ? How would it spill out of these four walls into Stellenbosch? How would it impact Stellenbosch if we began to live in a way that actually everything I have, every part of me, every particle in this body belongs to someone other than me? Imagine if all the other churches in Stellenbosch had loads of people who caught this, this same idea and who started to live as if their lives were not their own. Imagine what this simple realization and accept, acceptance of this key identifier of slave to Christ would do to fulfill our, our ability to fulfill our mission. This is our mission in one hope, being filled and filling Stellenbosch with the hope and life of Jesus Christ. That's our mission, being filled and filling Stellenbosch with the hope and life of Jesus Christ. Imagine how impactful we could be if we got on mission around the fact that I am a slave to Christ. Everything is His. Everything. I wake up every day and I say, Lord, it's all yours, all of it. Yes, even that teapot, even that thing, even that career choice, even that not taking the promotion. It's yours, it's yours, it's yours, it's not mine. Imagine that song we sang just now was so beautiful. That, that, the, um, Bless the Lord, O my soul. That song. And that last, that last verse really hit me. And on that day, when my strength is failing, it's obviously it's a, it's a poetic way of saying you're dying, right? It's your last moments. That's what it's saying. On that day, when my strength is failing, if we looked back on a life that had been given over to God in the way that I'm describing, that scripture describes, of, of saying, I'm your willing slave. Do with me as you want. I will do anything. I'll go anywhere. I will do whatever with my life because you are my master. And I'm not a servant that goes home and goes, whoo, thankfully that was just Sunday. But Mondays are coming. Monday I do what I like. Can you imagine 
on that day, looking back and wanting to have done anything else with your life other than God, it's yours. It's all yours. So what am I calling you to do this morning? What am I actually asking you to do? This is what I'm asking you to do. Would you consider if what I'm saying is biblical? Scripture says test. Would you consider it? And if you've considered it and you've concluded like me that it is biblical, then I want to ask you to step two, to consider in your own life how you're embracing it, how much of it you are embracing. Then I want, you to ask, I want to ask you if it is true, and you're considering how much you're embracing it, to really ruminate on it. You know, I love that word. It's like a, a cow that chews the cud. Just over and over and over again, it kind of burps it up and chews it again, and burps it up and chews it again. This is what, sometimes it's a great metaphor for scripture. When you get these scriptures, you burp it up and you, and you regurgitate it. You, you, wait, you, you burp it up and you swallow it again. You think about it. It's this, it's this ruminating, ruminating. I like that because it helps me to, it doesn't, you don't forget it easily. But I want to ask you to let this thing ruminate in your hearts for the coming months. I, I genuinely think this is one of the key identity aspects that we've got to get to grips with if we're going to follow Christ in a meaningful way. I want to ask you to begin praying prayers in the next few months of rededication, of saying, God, I haven't seen it like this. I'm sorry. I do want to see it like this. I rededicate this part of my life. I want to ask you just to start your morning. I get into my office and I don't, there's very few mornings where I don't begin my day with just, even if it's 10 or 15 minutes of just saying, Lord, what should I do today? Even if I've got my list, I've got a great app called Todoist. It's got tons of things on there that I've got to do. I know what I need to do with my day in some sense. But it's so profound to just start my day and just go, God, how do you want me to spend this day? Where should I start? Should I do admin first? Should I do prayer? Should I do this? Should I do that? It's, it's not rocket science. It's just, but it's this, this idea of I'm not my own. This day is not my own day. It's not, it's not just mine to do with as I please. If you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior this morning, this is quite a hard message to come to. But actually, this is a very real portrayal of what it really means to follow Jesus. What it really means to follow Jesus is not just putting your hand up one Sunday and then saying after me, there's a, there's a wonderful component to that too, I'm not dissing that. But that's not what it is. It's actually something in our hearts going, I am yours now. I remember once reading a quote that actually offended me when I first read it. It just felt so barbaric, I think. And it was, when God tells us to do something, the only response we are allowed to have when God says jump is how high. I read that years ago. The only response that we have when God says jump is how high? Where? Where did I jump? Can you imagine if we lived like this? I'm going to read one more scripture. Because Jesus did live like this. This is exactly how Jesus lived. Jesus gave himself into willing slavery, so to speak, to his Father. He says, I only do what I see the Father do. I never do anything, Jesus says. This is the perfect life. I never do anything except what the Father's already shown me. Man, I wish I could say that. The best verse I know for explaining this is, is Philippians 2. Paul says, when he writes to the Philippians, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ 
had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Think about rights. Jesus could have, it's, the scripture said this, Jesus could have called legions, that's tens of thousands of angels, to take him down from the cross. That was his right. Jesus had a heavenly right to get off that cross. Jesus had a heavenly right to just go to that oak who was whipping him and just like, just falls down dead. Jesus had a right, even the most simple right, to answer false accusations when he stood before Pilate and he says, are you the king? Who are you? Answer these questions. Have you done what they say? And it says Jesus was silent as a lamb. It's not a, um, it's not a pretty picture, but it, it helps actually understand what that means. When we were in the Karoo some years ago, one of our sheep um, on my dad's farm had got stuck and broken its, one of its legs very badly. And it's actually so cruel to take that sheep to try and go to the vet, which is hours away over bumpy roads. And so the, the kindest thing to do is actually to kill that sheep. And um, sorry, this is, I wasn't planning to go here, and I probably would have um, thought more carefully how I was going to word this, but just stay with me. So we, we had to slaughter that sheep. And the, the thing that was incredible, because we, we didn't have our guns with us and things like that. It was just a knife, like the old school, Old Testament kind of way it did not sorry if you've squeamish around this stuff it did not make one sound i did not know that when the scripture speaks about silent as a lamb to the slaughter i did not know that actually lambs don't make a sound not a sound it was a it was a a remarkable moment for me. I know it was horrible as well, but it was, it was an amazing moment that Jesus had these rights and yet he did not cling to these rights. Instead, it says, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. See that? And was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. What a savior we have in Jesus. Guys, I, I, I don't want this to land heavy. I really don't. But there's something serious in it. There's something serious in Paul writing to these guys and going, I am a slave to Jesus. Stephen Stefan, Stefan Smith is going to come and lead us in communion this morning, and we're going to be done. And as he comes, I'm just going to pray. Lord, I ask you that you would just take these words, your scripture, some of the harsh, hard things, some of the, the encouraging things, and I just, I just know sometimes we need moments where we're sober before you, where our lives are, are assessed, and I ask that you would do the work you need to do in us, Lord. Do the work you need to do in us, Lord. Where there's been unnecessary offense this morning, I just pray you'd come and have grace on those lives. If someone's leaving here upset with what I've said, I just pray that you would do what you do and be gentle and kind and lead them and help them understand what I'm trying to say even, Lord, in your wonderful name. Next week I'm going to speak on the relief of slavery and it's going to be a lot more upbeat we're going to be speaking out of Psalm 23, if you want to read it this coming week. 
um, and just the wonderful joy of being led in this kind of slave-master relationship by the wonderful shepherd. Amen?